if no other thought from our time together today would sink into your heart but that, that Christ as a substitute took your place and gave you the opportunity for life. That he who knew no sin became sin in order that those who knew no righteousness, literally, could become the righteousness of God in Christ. That is absolutely astounding. Good news, the gospel. That exchanged life. Amen? Well, this morning we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. We've been walking through the summer through this wonderful letter. I invite your attention to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. How many folks in here, how many in our congregation, it's always good just to kind of find out where, where our people are and what they like and, and those sorts of things. How many of you are movie buffs? Anybody really love movies? How many of you like to go to the movies? All right, there's a whole bunch of you. Now, I can say on that first question, I really like movies. I'm not a huge fan of going to the movies. You see, I, I love them. I love to watch movies. I'm intrigued by them. But I'm kind of a, a guy that just can't sit still for very long. Well, I can sit still, but let me just be honest with you. My, my kids would tell you I have slept through some of the best movies that have ever been put to film. And if they darken a room and put me in my recliner, then more than likely I sit there for a little while, I'm probably going to doze off. So why, in my estimation, would it be wise to pay somebody 8 or 10 or $12 and, and you know, take out a second mortgage on my house for some popcorn to go and sleep there when I can sleep at home? Now, I do, I'm kidding, but I do. I love movies. I love going to movies and seeing them from time to time. But I'm this guy. I like to go see movies, but usually I'll wait and I'll see them when they come out later and I can watch them at home. And, and there's a problem with that because everybody else, there's a, a big buzz around some blockbuster movie and everybody's talking about it. Well, I don't see it for a year or two. And so by the time that I see it and get excited about it and want to talk about it, everybody else has forgotten most of everything that happened because they were talking about it two years ago. Does that make sense to anybody here? I think it resonates with some. I mean, there are big blockbuster movies that have come out this summer. I don't have a clue what they are. They will come later on to the Academy Awards, and I won't have any idea what most of the movies that they're awarding are. But I want to tell you for just a second about a movie that I remember. In fact, I, I want to see if I can play something for you and see if this may bring back to memory your thoughts about that movie. All right? That bring back any memories for anybody? What movie is that? Jaws. Now that is probably not the sound you want to hear when you're out at the beach swimming or you're out on a boat. It's the last thing you want to hear when you're out deep sea fishing, right? Well, I'm not talking about the original movie Jaws. I'm talking about a movie that came out in 1983. Some of you can go back that far in your memory. Some of you have no idea what life was like in 1983 because you weren't around then. 1983 was the second sequel in the Jaws franchise. It was Jaws 3. And they were scraping the bottom of the, bear, the ocean by that point. I mean, they had run out of things for that shark to eat. It was a terrible movie. But there was something that sticks out in my mind about that movie. Some of you might remember. 
It was one of the very first blockbuster movies that came out in 3D. Now, you could walk in that movie and sit down and watch it and see the exact same movie that everybody else is watching. A terrible plot line. I mean, it was just not a great movie. But it was the first big blockbuster. It was the first mainstream movie that they put in this format called three-dimensional. And when you walked into the movie theater, they handed you a pair of these. Now, these have gotten sophisticated. These are a little more uh, uh, upscale than the ones that they gave. Then the ones were in paper, and they were awfully ugly. I imagine if somebody could sit out front and take a picture of the crowd, it really, really looked funny with their little paper glasses on. Now, I went by the Grand Theater yesterday, and I told them, I'm a pastor, and I've got a sermon illustration, and I need some 3D glasses. And they gave them to me. I'm amazed. I'm thinking about going to some restaurants this afternoon and saying, I'm a pastor, and I could really use some fried chicken for a sermon illustration that's coming up, see if they might get me. I don't know if they would or not. But you walked into that theater, and they handed you a pair of these, and you put them on, and all of a sudden, now that shark is right there in your face. I mean, there were points where the music got very dramatic, and I just wanted to snatch him off my face because I wanted him to go away, and I did, and he went way back over there. Now, some of you are wondering, Pastor, why in the world are you talking to us about 3D movies? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, in our series in 1 Peter, we've been talking about a group of believers who were struggling. They had been pressed down and, and persecuted. And Peter is writing to them words of encouragement that would hopefully give them renewed perspective on their lot in life. He has given them perspective of the grace of God. He has talked to them, as we've said over and over again, about grace and salvation. In those first couple of chapters, God has given you an inheritance. He's caused you to be born again. He has brought you from death into life. In chapter 2, He's given you a new identity. You weren't a people, and now you are a people. You are a chosen race of people. You are a, a peculiar people set apart for God's glory. You've been brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so he, he paints a picture of all of those things. And moving forward, he begins to talk about submission. We talked about that for several weeks. And now he's talking about suffering. And he starts out by saying Christ has suffered. And because Christ has suffered, we too can suffer well. That Christ is our example, but not only is he an example for us to follow, he is the one who has suffered once for all sins so that you and I might be carried into the very presence of God. That we would have the assurance of eternal life. And, and so he's talking about perspective. Now, here's what I want you to see. The Christian life is far more than a new perspective. It's not just a new set of lenses that help you see. That is, though, a part of it. The Christian life is not just a new perspective, but it's a new life. It is not just a, a new lens, if you will, but a new way of living. It is for us not just a new way of thinking, yet it is a new way of thinking. And for us to see life through the eyes of a believer, especially in light of what Peter shares with us, ought to bring someone here today great encouragement. Like a pair of 3D glasses that bring things into a new realm. When we begin to hear what Peter is saying to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we look at the world that is the same world that everybody else is looking at. Think about that. We as Christians face the same pains and struggles and trials, the same losses, the same joys, the same fears and anxiety. 
that those who are lost, people that don't know the Lord, face those same things. We're in the same set of circumstances, and yet we have a new perspective. We have a lens through which to filter life, far more than just perspective, but it is for us new perspective. And when those struggles come, when those worries enter in, when anxiety begins to rack your life, when relational difficulty comes or physical trouble comes, then I want you to hear this loudly. The Christian looks at life radically differently. You and I need to see we see it differently. And from chapter 4, which is where we'll begin today, all the way to the end of the book, Peter is teaching us how to see things differently. He's helping us to see that it is more than perspective, that it is position. That in Christ, our lives are different. And he helps us to see that through that identity, we have a handle uh, to make it through this life. I want you to see with me, if you will, from 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 4, this very thought. But I want to give you a, a, an opening thought that, that we've gone through a couple of times. It's sort of a big idea. And I shared with you last week that the Christian life is simply this. It's when Christ in us it, it ultimately is the fulfillment of what we are in Christ. I said it this way. It's who you are in Christ becoming Christ in you. It means that you are in Christ and all of the identity that that brings, all of the significance of what that brings to be in Christ, to be kept, to be uh, given eternal life, to be joint heirs with Jesus for this inheritance, to have a richness of our lives. But it's when He begins to live through us. And, And I want us to say this. I want you to repeat it after me. The Christian life is all that I am in Christ becoming Christ in me. You see, when all that you are in Christ begins to grow to the place where Christ is living through you, it's the declaration of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. But the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Jesus Christ's life overflowing out of you and spilling onto others. It is Christ's life bubbling up through your life. And as we consider this this morning, I hope that you'll begin to see this aspect of life is incredible because Jesus has given to us the example and the model, but he's also given us the position. So we look together in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourself with the same attitude that he had and be ready to suffer too. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. As we look at this one verse, it's replete with all kinds of information about our lives. Jesus has suffered for us, and his physical suffering, we talked about it last week, literally it's the the construct of the word that means suffering unto death. Christ died for us. And because he suffered, you and I need to arm ourselves, prepare ourselves to suffer as well. Jesus has been through everything that you have gone through or will go through. Would you agree with that statement? Jesus has been there without sin. And as we think about him identifying with us by coming to earth as a man, then we need to identify with him. And the Bible says to arm yourself for the battle. 
Well, what battle are we talking about? How do I arm myself? We're going to talk through that today. But some of you immediately read this and say, okay, the Bible says since Jesus suffered, I need to be ready to suffer as well. But, Pastor, I'm not Jesus. I don't have in me the same capability, the same capacity that he does. Well, I want to argue with you and say that who you are in Christ says that you have at your disposal all of the spiritual resources of heaven because Christ has indwelled us through his Holy Spirit. And now spiritual living, life in the Spirit, means that we allow him to live in and through us. And the Bible tells us here in a very pointed way, arm yourself for battle. That means we are actively involved. We don't just rest crucified and sit off to the side and say, well, I'm going to let Jesus do it. No, we allow him to move in and through us, but we have an active participating part in this. We live in this daily battle, and some of you know well that there is a battle. There's a battle between the old way of living, the flesh, and our old ways of thinking, and the new life in Jesus Christ. And here's the the thought every single day. Every single day, your old life, your flesh, or Christ in you will dominate. Every single day. And the question emerges for me and for you, how am I living? Am I living by the flesh? Am I living according to the Spirit of God? The Bible tells me to arm myself for the battle, prepare for the battle appropriate the mind of Christ. Literally, it it means that we would have the same mind. Let me share with you uh, another passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 2.16. This is from the Phillips translation. I love this. Incredible as it may sound, we who are spiritual have the very thoughts of Christ. What are you saying? And what Paul later says in Philippians is, you and I can have the mind of Christ. That means that we can approach this world with new lenses. That means that when pressures come, we have the lens of the mind of Christ and we begin to respond to people at work or at home or at school differently. We respond through the lenses of the mind of Christ. And here he says, Christ has suffered. You better arm yourself to suffer as well. Why? Because you will be in this battle. The battle is very real. It exists. Now let's continue on a little farther, starting in verse 2. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but will be anxious to do the will of God. You have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do. One other translation says the the debauchery or the debased things. And so they slander you. Look at that again, verse 4. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do, so they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God, and who who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. That is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people and now live forever with God in the Spirit. The Bible says there that people will give an account. Now, here's what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning. I want to give you three characteristics of life in the Spirit. I want us to think about what it means to live a spiritual life. Number one, it's this. Spiritual living 
is not driven by my desires, but it is consumed by the desires of God. It, it is not driven by my desires, but it is consumed with the desires of God. It, it simply means this, as believers, we no longer simply live for what we want. We live for what our Father in heaven wants. Would you agree with that? Now, we don't see a lot of that. I, I was talking to a, a couple of different folks this week who have said, you know, as I inspect fruit around me, I don't see a whole lot of Christians who are passionately standing up in obedience to the commands of Christ. We don't love like Christ desires for us to love. We don't live, and I'm not trying to just beat us all up, but I'm trying to hold that mirror up again and say, are we really living our lives consumed with the desires of God or driven by our own selfish desires? And you see, even a statement like this cuts against the grain of our American culture. Everything that we've been taught is, what will this get for me? What will this do for me? Look out for number which one? One, look out for yourself. And as we consider this notion, it's a, a worldview that's centered around living for what we want. And yet the text even said that you will not chase those things anymore. He says when you're armed for the battle, look at verse 2. You won't spend the rest of your life chasing your own desires. But you'll be anxious, anxious to do the will of God. Uh, how does this get me what I want? It's a question I ask all the time. Think about the last seven days of your life. Everybody look this way. Were you this past week, moment by moment, consumed with the will of God? Or were you simply driven by your desires? Do you live moment by moment? I can tell you there were moments of weakness where I said, I, don't, I didn't say this out loud, but my actions and my thoughts showed it. Right now, I don't care what God wants. I need to express what I want. Anybody else honest enough to say you've done that? There's a battle going on, isn't there? Have you ever found yourself doing things or saying things or thinking things and then just being ashamed and saying, I can't believe I said that or did that or thought that? You say, that is not honoring to the Lord. Hopefully you felt that. If you've not, that's called conviction, and the Spirit of God brings that to His own. If you've fallen under a place of conviction, I'd pray that you would turn to Him, and you would allow Him to begin to shape and mold your life. But spiritual living is a life that is not a, anymore driven by my own desires, but it's consumed with a desire to please God. I love this, 4.2 says this in the message. I'm just using some different translations to hopefully shed a little light. He says, then you'll be able to live out the days of your life free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. You see, we think we're free when we're searching after what we want, but we're not free. We're bound to sin. And yet God sets us free to please Him. Now, He says here, in essence, that there's this battle that is set up, the lust of men and the will of God. The lust of men can be translated strong desire, longings, craving. It's a sinful desire to disobey God. It's a sinful desire to please self. We would call it today the flesh. Are we walking and living in the flesh or in the spirit? And Peter wants us to understand two things about fleshly desires. I want you to see, number one, we still have them. They're still there. He says, he doesn't say that they go away when you're armed for the battle. He says, you better get armed up for the battle because we still have them. How, how many of you can say you were tempted this week to sin? 
Anybody? How many of you say, no, I'm good. I want not a single temptation. I'm looking around just to make sure because uh, we may have some liars in here. I may have just tempted you to lie in baiting you with that question. All of us face temptation. Now, we know temptation is not sin, but temptation to sin comes. We still have them. Even in Christ, we still have the lust of the flesh. But I want you to hear this. Praise God. They no longer have us. The, the desires of the flesh have been broken. I want you to see this. In Christ, the dominating power of the flesh has been broken. In Christ, we have the freedom to say no to sin, the freedom to choose to run to Him and abide in Him and to move away from those things. I have used an illustration over the course of my ministry, probably 20 years now, from a video that I saw in elementary school. They were trapping monkeys to take to the zoo, and they put a simple box tied to a, a small tree, usually a, a, a scrub tree out in the middle of, of uh, kind of an oasis area where they would come for food and for water, and they would put a a hole in the top of the box and they would put a grapefruit or some larger piece of fruit inside the box the grapefruit was small enough for the monkey's hand to go in but too big for the grapefruit to come out and the monkey would reach into the box and grab the fruit and look at all of his monkey friends and say I've got something you don't have and he would smile and he would smile right up to the point that they shoot him in the rear end with a dart and tranquilize him and take him off to the zoo at any given time, he could let go of the fruit and pull his hand out of the box and walk away into freedom. You and I think we have sin, but our sin has us. We hold on to things that are displeasing to the Lord, but somehow bring us some sense of sensual, lustful pleasure in whatever area it is. And we go, I've got it. And no, it's got you. And you need to understand that in Christ, the power of the flesh has been broken. That dominating power is gone. And so we've all been set free in Christ, and yet the battle is there. The daily battle is this. If I could boil it down to a sentence, am I today going to allow Christ in me to live through me? Spiritual life is very simple. Am I going to continue to live by the flesh? Am I going to let my flesh have its own way? Or am I going to crucify the flesh? And am I going to live alive to God? You see, we as believers are now can be dead to sin. But sin is very much alive toward us. But you don't have to be dominated by it. Look at verse 3, that list. Sensuality and lust and drunkenness and idolatry. You know, my attitudes and my actions that I pursue, that which pleases me. That's what he's talking about here. Am I just living for pleasing me? That's what the flesh looks like. Am I just living life to, to, to get what I want? And he, he goes on and even mentions idolatry. And so many times we remove ourselves from that language. But you realize that when our life begins to revolve around anything other than God, that's idolatry. When anything takes the place of God, that's idolatry. In Christ, that's not who we are anymore. And he says for us to move away from that. Paul said to the church at Ephesus this, All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires of our inclinations of our sinful nature. But by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everybody else. The Bible says something unique in the, the Old Testament. In the book of Psalms, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. 
You see, we're talking about following desires. And my understanding of that is pretty clear that he will put in me the desires of my heart. But there's a, a first phrase. You see, some of you are saying, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? But you've got to read the whole thing. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will put in you the desires of your heart. You see, the longer I live delighting myself in the Lord, I find myself wanting what He would want, desiring what He would desire, longing for what He would desire. And sometimes I hear these words, the will of God, and I think that's the demand of God. This is God's direction and will. Let me rephrase it for you. It's in your notes, but I want to put it on the screen. The will of God is that which pleases God and brings joy in the heart of God. That's God's will. His will is that which pleases Him and creates joy in His heart. And when I look at it that way, all of a sudden, I look at the things that I want radically differently. Because there are things that I want, but I know that those things do not please the Lord. You know, the flesh is lying to you. Do you agree with that? Have you thought about that? Your flesh is lying to you. Your flesh is telling you this stuff that pleases the flesh, that's all you need. Well, let me just give you a a simple uh, application litmus test. Why don't you go to rehab today? And ask the folks how that's working out for them. Ask how the pursuit of the flesh is is leading them to joy and happiness. You see, the Bible says that there's this battle between the will of God and our flesh, our own desires. And when we crave those things and we go after them, we find ourselves miserable and empty. Not necessarily immediately, but in the context of this whole letter, we see that those who are in Christ have a glorious future, have a a confident assurance of today, even in the midst of difficulty. It's a set of lenses, if you will, I can find my glasses. It's a set of lenses that bring things into radiant, clear, high definition. We we begin to see things that go beyond what we can see. And we don't live by sight anyway. We live by faith. And this unseen world of faith is far more real than anything that we can see here. And so we begin to please the Lord and trust in Him. Now, I want you to see this. The only way to find true fulfillment and joy and peace and contentment is to live for that which pleases the Father. Because He created you. And He knows what's best. Now, let's move on. Number two, spiritual living is not a life that blends in, but a life that stands out. It's a life that stands out. Students, I want you to perk up for a moment and listen to me. You are trying to walk out your Christian experience on a college campus or on a high school campus or a middle school campus. You're trying to walk in a place where much of the thinking around you is completely and diametrically opposed to the thoughts of God. Well, I want you to understand that your Christian life will stand out. And from this text, we see that. Look with me, if you will, in verse 4 and following. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. There are people in this room whose testimony is this. Maybe you've come to Christ, but before you came, you were afraid to let go of your life because you said, when I let go of my life, I'm no longer going to go to the places I went. 
I'm no longer going to do the things that I did. I'm no longer going to say the things, and I'm going to lose friends over it. You might lose business over it. Can I tell you, the Bible says that you shouldn't be surprised by this. He says, of course, they will slander you. Why? Let's look at it. They're shocked that you don't do what you used to do or go where you used to go or participate in those things. When you came to Christ or when you do come to Christ, people around you will see a difference. They'll see a marked difference in your life. When you're in Christ, you won't blend into the crowd. You'll stand out. And so the question today is, is your life one in which others see Christ in you and notice a difference? Too many Christians look like chameleons. They come here and they blend in and they can smile and play the game of church. And then they walk out the door unscathed and they go to their business or to their school or to their family or to their neighborhood. And their life has no mark of Christ about it. No aroma of Christ. We were in East Asia and one of the leaders of the church there that as you, you are well aware is, is underground in many respects. But one of their young college students had made a profession of Christ and, and literally this leader walked over at a period of time some weeks later and went... And this young college student kind of checked to smell, you know, does she smell something that I don't smell? And she said, I don't smell the aroma of Christ in your life. That's bold. What if we did a sniff test this morning at the door? What if on the way in we said, is the aroma of Christ marking your life? Sometimes our lives are, are filled with bitterness and anger, filled with selfishness and fleshliness and worldly pursuits. And the Bible is clear that we will not chase after those things when we're armed for the battle, but it's not that we arm, it says when we are in Christ. You see, the life of a believer won't blend in, it'll stand out. In fact, I want you to see the implications of this. Number one, you'll have opportunities. When, when your life stands out, people say, what's different about you? What, what's happened to you? And, and you can share a gospel conversation because of your life standing out. I love Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you'll have the right response for everyone. You see, your life in Christ will open up opportunities to share the gospel. William Barclay said these words, the, the Christian must of necessity be a missionary. Hear me. It is not by his words, but by his life that he will attract people to or repel them from Christianity. On the Christian there is laid the great responsibility, not of simply talking about Christ, but showing men Christ, not just in words, but in life backed up by words and, and words backed up by life. You'll have opportunity, but I also want you to see this. Because your life stands out, you'll face opposition. You'll face opposition. He says, of course they'll slander you. Now, I want you to hear me very quickly. We've gotten a pass on this one here in the United States. We're not there. You think about it. Most of us in the United States have embraced moral principles that were guided by our founding fathers. But the more our society drifts, the more we'll face opposition. The more our lives will stand out. Light is shining brighter and brighter against a darkening backdrop. 
Unbelievers were first puzzled and then outraged that the believers in Peter's day did not participate in the Greco-Roman world. They didn't participate in the drunkenness and the wild parties. They didn't participate in the lifestyle of idolatry. And consequently, they were persecuted for it. Now, you need to see, it wasn't necessarily state-sponsored persecution. It wasn't just evil empire of Rome. It was at least state authorized it was allowed but it was societal it was neighbor against neighbor neighbors felt conviction do you realize that when you take a stand for christianity people around you will be uncomfortable if they're not living up to that moral standard and even silent non-participation in sin listen to this one one person that i I read through this week it was amazing to me Uh, silent non-participation in sin often implies condemnation of that sin And rather than change the ways of unbelievers, they'll slander those who have panged their conscience. I can be in a social gathering with a bottle of water in my hand and everybody else has got liquor flowing. And I'm just drinking a bottle of water. I'm not doing anything inherently toward preaching about their sinfulness or otherwise. And I'm just using an example. I can do something where I'm not participating in sin that is around. I mean, just debauchery. And my silent non-participation preaches a sermon to those that are around me, and they can and will at times hate me for it. But it doesn't mean that we don't take a stand. It doesn't mean that we don't live our lives for Christ. Now, this battle rages on, but we need to fight the battle. Now, your life will stand out. It won't blend in. And ultimately, I want you to see this, the third principle. Spiritual living is not distracted with this life, but is focused on the life to come. It's focused on the life to come. Look back with me, if you will, at verse 5 and 6, and we'll bring this to a close. Interesting words. But remember that they will have to face God, who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. Now, some of us will look at that, and we'll say, well, I'm going to take my stand, and they'll, they'll just face God, and God will get them. You ever thought that toward an unbeliever? If you have, look at me as your pastor for a moment. Repent of that. I need to have a passion for lost people. And based on this verse, if somebody slanders me because of the way that I stand, I ought to weep for them knowing that they'll stand before a holy and righteous God and face judgment and face the possibility of eternity separated from God. I ought to have a passion to tell people, hell is real, but you don't have to go there. The good news is not that people are going to hell. The good news is they don't have to because Christ, their substitute, has given them the opportunity to be raised. We heard that song earlier today. It is finished is what Christ said. That work is complete. And our hearts should be so broken because they will stand before God. They act the way they act because they're lost. But for the grace of God, you and I would act that same way. And in fact, he says, you're former friends. And that means that you used to be a part of that. Peter's reminding them of these words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. He said, Father, forgive them. We in our minds say, God, get them. And Jesus said, forgive them. We'll have a passion for those who don't know Christ because our our lives are not consumed with this world and distracted but focused on the world to come. And secondly, I want you to see this. We'll have a peace in all of life's circumstances. 
We'll have peace. We can go ahead and put those two things up there. Then we'll have a passion for the lost and we'll have peace throughout this life. The unbelievers made fun of the Christians. And the Bible says that they all died. You see, he's saying there in verse 6, they all died just like we will all die. And they heard the good news just like we hear the good news. And you and I need to realize that death was not the end and is not the end. They are alive as they have ever been. And when we are living spiritually, we're not distracted by this world. We're not hanging on to the stuff of this world because we realize that there's more to come. We realize that there's a sequel to this life. If we'll go back to our movie terms, we realize that we will transition from this world. We'll breathe our last breath here on earth and then breathe instantaneously our first breath of heavenly air. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. No more battle. An overflow of intimacy with the Lord. And Paul said this, I consider the sufferings of this present world are not to be compared to the glories that are to be revealed. He said this is light and temporary and that is eternal and weighty and joy filled. Let me ask you just very pointedly. Are you seeing your life through the lenses of the mind of Christ? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Are you today on the bubble because you say, you know what, there's a lot of stuff I'll have to give up if I come to Christ. Yes, there is. But you know what? You will gain far more than you could ever comprehend. And all of those things that you long to hang on to will become worthless. In fact, Paul said that. He said, I count them all rubbish, loss. He even used the word dung. He said, it's garbage compared to the glory of what I have in Christ. And he said you can face this battle very, very confidently, living with confidence today and living with hope for tomorrow. The spiritual life is not one that will blend in. You'll stand out, but it will point toward Jesus. If you've never been saved, I'm going to invite you today to stand up and step out from where you are. In a moment, we'll all stand and we're singing. And as we sing, very simply, we have prayer partners. We call them encouragers. They have been trained to to take the Word of God and just share with you a word of encouragement to help you understand what it means to be saved. And I'm going to ask you to do this. I want this to be as clear an invitation as I can give. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and His atoning work, His work of paying for your sin on the cross, then today I want you to get up, stand up, and walk to the front. Take one of these encouragers by the hand and tell them, I want Jesus in my life. And they will walk you through how you can receive him by faith. They'll encourage you. They'll pray with you. Maybe you've got some other issue in your life that you need someone to talk through with you. They'll be glad to do that. That's why they're here. God doesn't want to ruin your life. He wants to redeem it. He wants to help you, not hurt you. And so for today, I want you to hear this. If you're a Christian who's looked like a chameleon, if you're a Christian who is not even arming yourself for the battle, you're just sitting back, and your life does not stand out. It blends in. Uh, Dads, let me speak to you. Do your kids see a difference in your life? Moms, do your children see a difference in your thoughts, in your speech, in your behavior? Or do you blend in with the crowd? You see, the life of a believer will stand out. Not encumbered by the things of this world. Not distracted, but focused on the world that is to come. Why don't you let God have his way during this time of invitation. I'm going to pray. Our musicians will come. We'll stand and sing, and you step out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for this time. 
I pray that even now you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit's convicting power and draw us closer and closer to you. And for that one today that needs to be saved, oh God, would you give them the grace and the courage to step out in faith. In Jesus' name.